Hello, I'm Hugh Ronzani and thank you for joining me for more Baroque Now. On this podcast, we explore the music, people and period instruments you may be discovering for the first time with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra and our digital stage, Brandenburg One. The Australian Brandenburg Orchestra acknowledges the many traditional custodians of the lands on which we meet and perform. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and to our shared future. Today I'm joined by Shunsuke Sato, often touted as one of the world's best violinists but also the artistic leader and concertmaster of the Netherlands Bach Society. It is a true pleasure to have such a fantastic musician here in the country and may I implore you all to go see him live in the Bachs. Shunsuke, thank you for joining me today. Hello, Hugh. <laughs> Hello, Shunsuke. Thank you very much for coming in and speaking with me today. It's a pleasure to have you here in the country as well. I'm sure Australia and, and the fine weather has been um, uh, something you've missed over the last uh, five years, although we haven't really been putting on a good show, have we? Uh, it's been very wet and, and, uh, and cold for you this time around. Feels just like home. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you're not too well, deflated by all of that. Right. Um, now, this is obviously your first time in Australia since 2016, and so I would love for our listeners, our Brandenburg listeners and listeners everywhere, to get to know you a little bit better and the exciting projects that you have been working on and some of the very fine music that you have enjoyed making over the past six years since Sato and the Romantics. Is there a project that uh, stands out in the in the last few years that springs to mind, something that you'd you'd like to tell us about? Oh, gosh. Um there's so many, um, but actually the the project here. I mean, I really keep coming back to it, but uh, not because of this particular podcast or the the content, uh, the the context of it. But it, that was really special um, for me to I, I to to do that repertoire with these musicians, with this open mindedness, um, also really trying things out and. And also that particular Paganini concerto was was long on my bucket list. Um, interestingly enough, not because of the outer movements, but because of the middle movement, the, the, this very um, melancholic movement in F sharp minor. You know, not a, not a key that you see uh, very frequently in violin concertos, certainly. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's definitely up there with with my, one of my most memorable projects. Um, I did do a Matthew Passion uh, in April of this year, and that was uh, my first go as a leader of, of such a large, iconic work. And, you know, uh, for me, it was kind of a, yeah, um, a moment to, well, number one, to see whether I could do it at all as a leader. Um, and I think I can. Um, but also to kind of consolidate all the wonderful ideas that I had um, gathered across, um, yeah, basically ten years of being concertmaster in in the ensemble where I am now um, also arti- artistic leader. I do concertmastering as well. Um, yeah, and to find actually the Matthew passion that I want, um, and that itself is a process you have to do it and see how it all hangs together and then and then yeah i changed a few few 
uh, rather theoretical ideas that I had, which didn't quite work, um, or I got new ones in 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 the course of the tour. And um, so yeah, that that does stand out, and I'm forgetting a lot, uh, missing a lot. I know that's that's the look. You're a very busy man. Obviously, Shunsuke, many people will recognize your face. You are a several million listener uh, viewership on YouTube uh, alone. Perhaps you could tell us who is Shunsuke Sato. Who, what what do you do, and where do you do it, and what brings you to Australia? Yes, who is Shunsuke Sato? Well, um, he is um, a violinist. Um, with uh, quite a scattered background. Um, born in Japan, grew up in the US, went to study in France and Germany, living now in the Netherlands with um, his own ensemble called the Netherlands Box Society. Um, quite a classical upbringing, musically speaking. Um, went to the Juilliard School, did the whole run of concertos and performed them, um, and then felt the urge to go to uh, what's known as the dark side um, in the trade, the um, historical performance practice uh, movement, as it were. Um, and then, yeah, I, I've been doing that for now, gosh, I think uh, nearly 20 years, I think. And I... I uh, do as many, I mean, in, in the age of, you know, um, categories or let's say um, labeling of musicians, um, you know, he is uh, specialized in Baroque or this or yes. that. I um, try to, well, I, I, I s seem to escape that, not because I necessarily want to escape labeling per se, but because music is wonderful and um, I get fired up about many different kinds of music. Yes, yeah. yeah. I can see a kindred spirit because, in fact, often I get asked the question, what's my favourite music? Or I might be pigeonholed being librarian for a, a Baroque orchestra, as it were, as being specialised or having a particular uh, interest in this uh, period of time whatever this period of time is, because yeah. literally in the first series um, of concerts for this year, we were doing Foray's Requiem. So, you know. Lovely. Yeah. <laughs> it's more about the the beauty of the music, I think, than, yes. than, than anything else. And and sometimes there are lessons to be learned on either side of that, uh, of that spectrum, earlier and later music. Absolutely. And um, what I think... Uh, the big the the big thing to learn or to be learning constantly learning is um well for me certainly as uh, an hip or historically informed per, uh, performer uh, so you're taking music from the past and you you need to know about the context you need to know um uh how to read between the lines basically you know you're, you're missing you know you basically start with the assumption that you're missing lots of uh, information um, and and the the pleasure is actually finding that out you know what's what am I missing out on you know could I could I is there is there uh, are there relevant pieces of information that can make this music more uh, exciting and, and clear and then to also bring that here and now into into uh, uh, 2022 and to your audiences of now and still make that understandable and just as moving mm. because um, yeah, I mean, there is 
um, always going to be, I mean, every generation and every, you know, even 30 years ago, you know, we were still smoking in airplanes and, <laughs> and, 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 and uh, driving cars without seatbelts, you know, just, um, you know, there are, uh, let's say, habits or uh, customs that, that, that uh, belong to every time period and, and extend that back 50, 100, 200 years, it's going to be a completely different world. And so, you know, to bring that into the here and now, that's also a challenge too. Oh, very much so. And um, I, I certainly have fond holiday memories of being on the back seat with no seatbelt. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, perhaps, uh, obviously, uh, as you've hinted at, uh, very few players do start on period instruments and you yourself, you know, started on a, on a modern instrument. Do you remember when and, and how you were introduced to the, the Baroque violin, as it were, the dark side? Well, the actual instrument, yes. Um, that was um, one of the... Um First things that I did after going to uh, Paris when I was 19, so that would be, hang on just a second, 2003. And um, un until then I was in the US and living in a place called Philadelphia, um, not too far from New York. And um, it was simply not an option to go into, or at least at least uh, at that time, maybe it's different now, but um, to go into a violin shop and to find a Baroque violin or God strings or any any uh, instrument um, uh, of any sort. And in Paris, you you would do the same, and you would find basically basically already in the show in in the in the, in the, in the in the vitrine, in the vitrine um, a gamba, or there you go. And so um, I do remember that very first encounter having a broke violin and, and gut strings. And funny enough, so I did sort of the obligatory, you know, Bach and whatever, you know, Baroque repertoire I knew at that time and noodled a little bit on it. And then I did something very odd, um, which was um, I played some... Chrysler uh, short pieces, Fritz Chrysler short pieces on them. And the reason for that is that I suddenly noticed that, you know, so I loved his recordings. I, I loved his recordings and other um, old recordings by, by, by uh, violinists from the early part, part of the 20th century, um, Heifetz and etc. And I noticed that I was playing on strings that reminded me of their sound. And indeed, these violinists, um, Chrysler, etc., they all played on gut strings. And, and so what I did on this violin tuned, you know, half a step to, you know, ha well, uh, too, too low uh, at 4.15, I was playing, you know, uh, uh, all these short pieces that I, that I had in my ear and in my fingers. And so it was um, not just an encounter with, a Baroque violin, but just a completely different sound world that, in fact, I already knew a little bit and that I loved. Mm. Um, now, with HIP as a general idea or um, the fact that, let's say, Baroque music and classic uh, music from the classical period, as we call it now, um, that it can be different, um, that I... I think that was less um, definite. I think I had a few Christopher Hogwood recordings, um, also modern, quote unquote, modern violinists like Christian Tetzlaff, 
um, who who doesn't do broke violin per se, but he definitely um, took quite a lot of inspiration from from that. You know, you, less use of vibrato, um, note shapes, etc. So um, I was keenly aware of the fact that outside of my my New York Juilliard uh, American. Uh, musical education that there were other things and I I was interested in that so mm. but that was just bit by bit by bit um, yeah I, I couldn't point a finger to when that happened mm. and it's it's funny that you mentioned some of those early 20th century recordings and players because one of the go-to references that I, I tend to use is that the Rite of Spring was premiered on gut strings absolutely and a lot of people know that work very well and think of it as a very modern sounding work and yet when they hear it on gut strings as opposed to a very bright and, and metallic sounding orchestra it uh it can almost change their world you know they 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 haven't thought about some of those some of those pieces in the early 20th century repertoire as being primarily a, a different sound world absolutely mm. and um oh, to to go on that um uh, tangent um, Debussy and Ravel Quartet String Quartet um, There are recordings by uh, The Capé Quatuor Capé um, They actually Worked and knew Worked with and knew both composers And they played on gut strings Number one but what's quite shocking I think for, for people who might be Used to modern day performances They're, they're complete different take on Everything <laughs> um, from from phrasing to tempo to vibrato to portament, everything everything is different. Yes, Every, absolutely everything. And and indeed, yeah, within one last one 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 hundred years, I mean, how much has changed? Yeah, yeah. And that's not going to even singing. I mean, that's just <laughs> yeah, a complete. I mean, it's the same. Well, it's the quote unquote same human voice, but mm. how it's approached. My goodness, what a what a different world. Now, you've had a lot of opportunities to work with singers as part of this All of Bach project. The, the Netherlands Bach Society is incredible, uh, indeed. This is a fantastic project, sharing the world uh, with the whole world, um, the, the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, perhaps maybe we could go on a, a tangent and talk about that. The, the violin as an instrument lends its history to imitation of the voice, as it were. And during the Baroque period, we probably see a, a wonderful coalescence of both art being at the height of their powers almost. Um, perhaps through this All of Bach project, maybe you could highlight some collaborations where that comes into the fore, working with singers as, a, as essentially an artistic director but also as the concertmaster. Um, yeah, so certainly as a... Uh, uh, as an ensemble, uh, we... We need to always need, be, need we need to meet in the middle, as it were. You know, so the so the singers often, actually, I would say, in the music of Bach, being required to sing quite instrumentally, quite angel, quite um, yeah. Um, it's interesting for all of Bach's vocal music. Um, if you compare it to others, Handel, Graun, uh, Telemann, even just within the contemporaries, it's rather unvocal, actually. Um, and so they, on their side, need need a, a very special, let's say, uh, mindset when singing, um, which I think our singers most certainly do. Um, and also from the instrumental side, yeah, always being aware of the text, um, just to give you an idea. Um, I have insisted on having, um, so when we have a chorale or colaparte, so colaparte means um, uh, playing 
unisono, the same notes, the uh, the same melody line as the singer, but then of course without words. Um, when possible, to actually have the text underneath, um, and that um, of course, uh, yeah, it changes everything from 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 the way you breathe the way you shape a note how hard is that initial consonant and of course as instruments um as an instrumentalist you can't make final consonants but at least it'll give you an idea of how to mm. how to shape that note you know how to come off that note how uh yeah and so um uh yeah it is a very different but very rewarding i think uh approach to music where you really get um yeah so as many facets uh, as possible i think the only one missing um is uh, let's say the theatrical uh the the dramatic aspect um which was i think also quite a given in 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 that time um uh, rhetoric uh rhetorica being one of the um yeah uh key subjects at school everybody learned it and it's mm. not just about speaking but also the gestures that accompany speaking and 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 um and uh yeah so this is what we do and bringing that together then, what you were talking about um, earlier, your Matthew passion more recently, um, perhaps you could uh, tell us about that process and, and how, how these thoughts uh, coalesced in, in your ideas, your artistic ideas for that particular work. Yeah, so um, story above everything. Um, it is um, one of the most dramatic... Um, um, not just dramatic, but also very non-abstract in some ways, because I think um, often um, within Bach's works, you know, you have um, uh, so a typical cantata um, deals about a theological subject. It takes um, a passage out of the Bible, and it's a bit, and it's a reflection on it. Let's say um, it's less story-driven than. Than the passion, and of course, the passion is full of uh, of moments of theological or self um, uh, reflection. But it is the backbone of it is a story, and it's a very um, yeah exciting. It's not really the word. It's 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 quite gory. It's it's tragic. It's um, it's painful. Uh, yeah, it really grabs you by 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 the gut and 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 doesn't let you go um and so that was for me very important to show that side um of because also what i like what i what i like to show in a piece like that is it's about the most the 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 cruelest ugliest side of mankind um the torturing of 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 jesus that also leads to the most beautiful and the most um, enlightened, uh, elevated, um, as well. So there's 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 already within the story a sharp contrast of light and dark. Mm. And um, so definitely how to speak the text. Um, also, we looked at keys. Um, in, and it's no coincidence that it starts out in E minor. That the the that the last. Uh, moments of Christ are in when uh, Christ says Eli, 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 Lama Zaftani, uh, that that's in B flat minor, E flat minor keys that basically don't exist, so to speak. Um, they're so out there in terms of keys that, yeah, um, all the 
temperaments that were used at that time sound horrifically out of tune. Um, and Bach uses this. And so to really um, take all these devices and see the expressive value in it and and yeah, every evening, every 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 performance to to believe in the story and to, to go all the way with it. Um, and um, and I think also the chorales, the, those those were actually some of my favorite moments, I have to say, collective sort of a, a congregational reaction to, to, to the story, as it were. And, and sometimes it's, it's it, very meditative. Sometimes it's reacting, reacting to a horrific uh, scene um, or you're, or you're just in, 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 in tears, so to speak, and reacting. Um, and uh, I think we were able to get it to a point where it was very spontaneous and, 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 and every performance was quite different. And that was lovely. Well, I, I'm, I'm sad to have not been there because it, it really, I mean, the picture that you're painting is, is my ideal concert situation in, in a sense that um, you, it, it's not music that you go into thinking that it's going to be an easy listening experience. You know, you're going to be moved, you're going to be pushed. And, yeah. and the more that the musicians make it believable, uh, the more poignant some of those those messages that um, Bach was was obviously writing to as well. Yeah. You know, those choices are not uh, coincidental. Absolutely not. I mean, I think, <clears throat> uh, you know, in that way, uh, they were craftsmen, real real craftsmen of of music. In that um, they uh, they had specific tools. All, all the composers of not just Bach, but of yeah uh, of of his time certainly, and and before and after, you know, used certain devices such as keys or intervals or figures, knowing that these these elements evoked certain emotions or they would be used in certain situations there were conventions let's say and so so it wasn't just pulling things out of thin air there was taking these um if i can put it in some really crass uh, uh terms like almost like lego building blocks everybody has the same um but it's it's how you combine them that mm -hmm. makes that makes uh um something great or not so great and um and so, yeah, all, every, everything was very codified, and it's and again, it sounds like it was, there were restrictions, but in fact, it helps you to understand these works better. Why is it in? The, why is it in E major and not F? You know, what's what's the difference there? Is there a particular chorale that you would like to to put oh, on gosh. as an example? Well, yeah, this is um, uh, a performance of one of the chorales from the Matthew Passion. Ich bin, ich sollte büßen. Um, this was, I think, about eight years ago, um, and I'm sitting in the concertmaster's chair, um, and directing the performance is the former music director Jos van Veldhoven. <laughs>
Now, I'll leave that going on in the background, mm-hmm. Shunsuke. 29,000 likes, <laughs> two and a half million views. What is it like leading a, a group that that has already you know risen to such prominence now um, online and, and clearly has a, a very popular um, backing? Mm. Um, it's bizarre, uh, and and uh, now and then I'm confronted, or we we as an ensemble are confronted with it when we go places. Um, and they, after the concert, you have members of the audience coming to you and, and saying, "We feel like we've known you for." For years now, we've been following you, and um, we can hardly believe that you're there in the flesh and 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 have repor- have performed for us. Um, it is a bit mind-boggling that way because, of course, when you're making the recording and you're performing, you're doing it for the for 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 yourself for your for your, for the acoustic that you have, and you're not thinking about. Um, potential uh, hundreds of thousands of views views at all um, and in a way yeah it's certainly in those moments when you realize hmm um, maybe what what we're doing uh, um, is making making change in the world for the good um, and yeah when you're doing it for that moment sometimes it is indeed hard to gauge that um, if not impossible um, of course you have to have the yeah, um, yeah. You and the audience, you have to meet halfway, and um, and that clearly seems to be happening. So it's, um, yeah, it um, it makes me happy. Is there something in the in the music itself, um, or is it more of the the story of Johann Sebastian Bach that's become so prominent? Obviously, now the Golden Record and all of these sorts of things. Is there something in the music you think that uh, that might explain this appetite that we we have as modern audiences listening to this music that's now, you know, several hundred years yeah, old. That's a, that's a tough one. I think <clears throat> yeah, one needs to consider it from many many angles. Um, I mean, the fact that Bach uh, at all is has become, uh, let's say, sort of a um, um, without having wanting to make it sound cheap, but a brand name. You know, it's it's one of the the the, the fixed items of of music. Uh, Classical music, for sure, um, and that has its historical background. Um, there were many, many composers um, in his day and afterwards that were more popular, arguably, than than Bach. And it took actually quite a while um, for for him to come back into the to the mainstream, so to speak. Um, and there are historical factors to to um, to be considered for that. Um, and uh, and of course, a good pile of luck uh, that also, so much of his music has survived because, um, as we know, that that can often be uh, quite problematic. With mm. um, you know, just uh, one fire can wipe out um, an entire life's work of, of a composer, which has happened quite often. Um, and I think, uh, but I do think that there there are th- certain things in music in the music of Bach that do appeal to the modern um, taste. And one of them is, um, yeah, let's say architecture, how the music is written. Um, it's very, it's so well put together. It's just so incredibly, all the all the parts fit together, they work together and they complement each other. And, and um 
in a day where you know we 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 I think are are in our times we like that kind of organization of 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 structure and and balance. I think that's um, something that appeals to to many of us. Um, because if I compare it, let's say to um, yeah. Uh, yeah, even one generation after Johann Sebastian Bach, um, when things started to become more, yeah, uh, less dependent on structure and and the bones, but more about expression, so to speak, the, the freedom of, of expression. For example, you have an, an aria of seven minutes, which is quite long, um, and the line is quite simple, and so a lot of it is meant to be... Um, interpreted and and changed and inspired by the performer itself a uh, performer them, themselves of course we need that for bach as well but there's much more room for ambiguity let's say that if you look at the music just by itself it's too simple so to speak whereas with bach you have you have most of it already there written out for you and um i think that 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 um is quite appealing to yeah. um, to many of us and from a an historically informed performance perspective, obviously that it becomes a reference point because we we do have examples of what sort of ornamentation and and various other details uh, would have been in the devil, so to speak. And and it, it's it's incredible to um, to now uh, obviously have this opportunity with you here to discover some more of the uh, Bach family uh, music and the Bach family members. Now you you obviously uh, th- this program the Bachs. I mean, the title says it all, doesn't it? Seven generations of, of musical brilliance. Perhaps you could tell us about the process that, that brought about this particular project. Um, was it um, a Paul Dyer suggestion or was it a Shunsuke Sato desire? Mm-hmm. Uh, why the Barks and why the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra for this particular yeah. project? Um, so this was... Um uh, brought to me by Paul with um, basically two pieces that he really wanted to see on the program, namely the uh, oboe violin concerto and the um, and the C major uh, orchestral suite. And for the rest, it was pretty free um, in terms of in terms of concept. And um, and yeah, I had just done, um, I think at that time, a program which included um, quite a lot of family members um, and and you know, having just scratched that surface, I wanted to go further. And also when I did that particular program, it was, it was with a smaller ensemble, so a smaller orchestra, so without wind and everything. So, um, and yeah, and I really like um, reminding um, everyone that it was indeed a whole family um, and that each one of them had um, their own brilliance and their own identity and language. Um, independent, but also um, very much uh, a product of their times. So the idiom of Heinrich Bach, who was one of the earliest uh, family members from whom we have surviving music, is obviously going to be very different from Johann Sebastian or uh, Carl Philipp. Uh, but still, there's this, I don't know, there's this um, extra something that really gives the music sort of a, a sheen, um, a, a strong character, and you really see that in in just about every piece that I've seen, anyway. Um, just this great architecture, um, balanced with a sense of form and melody and harmony and surprise, and you get everything. 
Mm. Uh, talking to the um, the sort of simplicity of sometimes the dots on the page versus the renditions that um, that the audiences tend to enjoy, um, the Heinrich Bach, but also the 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 Syriacus Willeke, the 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 only non Bachian on mm. the uh, on the program. Uh, when you look at the the notes as they are on the page, it does c- come across as being extremely uh, simple. You know. It, it, they don't seem to be any, di- and yet you, as uh, as the the guest director uh, of the orchestra, have produced this wonderful sound and and contrasts of color and light. Um, what was it? What how how is it that you come up with such interesting contrasts uh, in a piece like that? I mean, obviously, maybe maybe we'll talk about Heinrich Bach first, and then and then after that, the Battaglia. Yeah. Well, I think um, often it it comes straight from the notes. Um, uh, knowing what to look for, actually, um, and that of course evolves with time. Like, let's say you have um, quickly repeated notes, you know, something like this. You know, um, if you know that this figure was used um, long before uh, Heinrich Bach's time as um, as a figure um, that was used to to uh, illustrate excitement or even rage, you know, then you know what to do with it. Um, <laughs> or if you have, a, or contrast, looking for contrasts, you know, oh, the rhythm suddenly changed here. Why? You know, um, or the meter changed. Um, why is this harmony here? You know, so on, on paper, if you just look at it, it looks quite indeed um, but if you if you look if you if you know where and what you're looking for um, these these things for me anyway they, they really just spring to spring out of the page um, be, well also because I'm looking for them and uh, the same goes for the battalia um, there are long stretches of just C major C major C major C major and you think okay well you know you know uh, 10 bars, 20 bars of C major, what am I going to do with this? Well, if you know that um, we're talking about battlefield trumpets um, trying to scare the enemy into submission, then, yeah, if you, it needs to be terrifying. It's not just C major, but it's actually not at all C major. It's a, it's a terrifying, um, bone-shattering um, one minute, you know, that, that that's, that's what I'm going for and that's what I'm looking for. So... Yeah, that's how. Uh, that's how, and I'm glad to. I'm glad to hear that it's been so uh, exciting to listen to. Oh, it, it certainly has. In fact, the the rehearsal process, um, your style, uh, if I if I may, is very different to 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 Paul Dyer's uh, style. And having rehearsed many times with Paul myself, um, often there will be um, an anecdote or something that will will spark a new way of 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 singing or performing the music that that Paul seemingly grabs these ideas from all over the place <laughs> and and brings it into the uh, into the rehearsal space. But but I think in in your own process, you you really did have the the players playing a lot mm-hmm. and and focusing on on the sounds together, mm-hmm. just listening collectively, listening mm-hmm. to what each uh, each other were doing, and then built it from the ground up. Mm-hmm. You know, starting with with one section and then moving moving on, and mm-hmm. it was it was a fascinating thing mm-hmm. to see. Yeah, I mean, rehearsing, uh, that's such an art, and there's no way of teaching it, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> I mean, there are a couple of pointers, let's say, you know, the, you know, the, um, of, you know, how how and when to stop an, uh, an, uh, an ensemble in full swing. 
is it necessary? Um, uh, when do you do it? How do you do it? A um, couple of general things, but the rest indeed is very much the the, the person. I mean, sometimes yeah. charisma kind of overrides a lot of things. Um, and I mean, I can't judge that for myself, but I mean, I, um, I, yeah, I, I, I think as a player myself, um, I mean, when you, especially with these new pieces, um, the more you play them, the better, simply. Um, and there were quite a number of new, completely new pieces that nobody knew in this particular program. And so it was important for me, if it's, if it's a piece that everybody knows, maybe a complete, it's, it's going to be completely different. Um, playing might be less important in some ways. But um, yeah, so to gauge at every uh, corner and turn what's necessary for um, for the ensemble and for that moment is something I... I'm still working on. I mean, I, I, I do think back on rehearsals um, afterwards and think, hmm, I should have done this or done that. And um, um, this could have been better if I had said this. Or And indeed, there are also places in, uh, in the rehearsal where a story or a joke or just something completely non sequitur <laughs> uh, really livens things up. So, um, yeah. Very true. Now, uh, perhaps for our listeners, we can put on a little bit of this fantastic music. Now, it, it, it's unfortunately not your ensemble nor the, the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra performing, but we shouldn't let that get in the way uh, of, of, some, of some, <laughs> <laughs> some good music. Oh, this one, yeah, indeed. This is, uh, this is uh, quite a pioneering reco uh, recording, um, well, done by a pioneer, uh, himself a pioneer, uh, Reinhard Goebel. Um, He's a, a German musician, formerly a violinist, now conducting quite a lot, and uh, and he was so good at um, finding new works and digging them up. And um, yeah, we are definitely I I have definitely reaped uh, a lot of fruit from from this particular recording and him, him in general. So yeah, it's a wonderful performance. So let's have a listen to the Sonata Cinque in F major uh, by Heinrich Bach, recorded here by Reinhard Goebel and Musica Antica Köln. <laughs> Listeners may recall that I played this uh, particular um, piece for uh, the podcast with Dr. Alan Maddox, Tales of Baroque. Uh, he had some, some insights into the, the repetitive nature of the piece and, and, and how repetition is being used here to actually unlock the, the potential affect that can be produced by the ensemble. Um, what does you know? What's your take on this particular piece? What what things should listeners maybe be uh, keeping in mind while listening to this particular work? Yeah, it's a quite a whirlwind of a piece. If I if I mean it's, it it feels a little bit 
innocent because I mean literally there's just one page of music but there's so much happening every <clears throat> every half bar every one, every bar there's something new you know something like that's repeated twice in different keys same thing and then it's like one two and three you know something completely different um and to be doing this actually the whole time through there are actually also a couple of adagios that suddenly come in the middle of a very fast section um so it's a piece that requires um agility from from everyone's part um just keeping keeping your eyes forward and up all the time So from this same album, uh, the Battaglia by Syriacus Wilke was also um, recorded, Reinhard Goebel and Musica Antica Köln. Um, I'm going to put this on for listeners now, but um, perhaps just before I put it on, is there something in particular in the opening section we should be listening for? Um, the fact that the line is very typical trumpet uh, uh trumpet like you know the 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 way the line is constructed is very you know you can you can totally hear a natural trumpet um playing all these notes and so it right away starts off with with an indication of well it's being played by string instruments but the reference is 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 clear it's a brass instrument
obviously in this music we can hear um, some of those things you've been talking to, the idea of a, a battle. And one of the things I noticed with the way that you had the orchestra on stage was that you had the violin ones on one side, the violin twos on another side. And it was really an antiphonal battle as well. You, you really had, you know, one side calling and the other side responding uh, as if the battle was happening on stage. All directed in my general direction. Yeah. <laughs> Me standing in the middle, yes. And maybe you had a white flag uh, just, to, oh, just, just in, in case? case? I always have one just in case. <laughs> so tell us about Syriacus Wilke then. So why is he in the program, the Bach? So it's, uh, yes. Perhaps remind audiences as to, as to why that is. So his last name is Wilke, or Wilke, Wilke um, as things go, his spelling was, you know, uh, I mean, in all languages, very variable. Um and Johann Sebastian's second wife, Anna Magdalena, her last name, her maiden name was Wilke, Wilke. And so see, the diff- basically the difference is of spelling. And um, we think that Syriacus was Anna Magdalena's grandfather. And that's also very, um, very plausible, if not factual, straight out factual, because um, Anna Magdalena came also from a very musical family she was a uh, she sang um well she was in fact a um a up and coming soprano absolutely. and quite quite popular absolutely. as a singer herself yeah absolutely so um so yeah it's no it should come as no surprise that um, her grandfather also wrote brilliant music just we don't know whether he wrote uh, he must have written others but they must all have either disappeared or are waiting to be discovered mm Indeed. And uh, one of the things I find rather tragic about Anna Magdalena as, as a character is that she, she's often uh, almost ignored uh, uh, after Johann Sebastian's death. It's terrible. Um, and, yeah. and yet the, the things she, she would have endured, uh, essentially a descent into basically poverty, as it were, and, uh, and dying uh, on the street. Uh, I don't. I don't know if you're familiar yeah, with with it's, the, it's, the it, details, but uh, it's it's I, a terrible story. When I first read that, I was just I was I was nearly in tears. I mean, basically the 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 church council just completely refused to do lift a, lift a, lift a finger to to help uh, Johann Sebastian's widow. Um, and it's not like they gave Johann Sebastian a really <laughs> easy time either. I'm yeah. So it's it's. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's one of the great tragedy, tragedies. And as a matter of fact, I I was in Leipzig not too long ago, about a month ago, and I found a book. Uh, I was actually <laughs> there to buy. Um, uh, feel feel free to laugh. Um, also at at uh, at home for you all. Um, I was buying um, these Playmobil figures. <laughs> These Bach Playmobil figures, so his wig is removable, and you can stick a uh, a feather quilt uh, in his hand, and, and you know, it was obviously for my daughter. And then I was in line. Um, I was in a bit of a hurry, so that was literally the only item I was after. And then I was in, in line, and I looked over to the to the left side, and then I saw a book that said um, that had on this title the the women of the Bach family. I'm like, hmm, and I took it and I looked at the back where it was summarized and it said this book is basically the first serious attempt at gathering all the available documentary uh, uh, evidence of all the female family members Um, and then and of course I had to buy it because yeah the scholarship is very scattered on this front and uh, 
and uh, yeah, without the women, there would have been no family, and of course, uh, all the all the you know, household things that had to be done in 18th century Europe. I mean, just uh, keeping the house warm, <laughs> all that was already. Uh, I mean, I just I can't imagine what uh, what uh, difficulties just daily life would have would have thrown at you. Well, so far as uh, also I've understood, if it weren't for Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach's uh, help and his uh, financial contributions to Anna Magdalena, things would have been even even worse. Of course, yeah. And uh, and we you, you, during your speech uh, in the um, uh, several uh, times during the concerts here in Sydney, you've mentioned how uh, Wilhelm Friedemann, Johann Sebastian's uh, eldest son from his first uh, first marriage. Uh, how Wilhelm Friedemann himself was in poverty and and uh, often had to pawn music to to avoid becoming destitute, and uh, so he was unable to help, unable to to contribute anything. He was struggling himself. Uh, I I just can hardly imagine how difficult it would have been with all those children still at home after the death of Johann Sebastian, uh, trying to, as you say, keep the house warm, mm. uh, keep on going when the the the. Breadwinner essentially had uh, had just uh, died. I mean, having said that, Johann Sebastian did live a, a pretty long life for the the standards of the time, but nevertheless, I mean, the, he, there was a gaping hole upon his um, upon his death. Mm, absolutely, yeah, and um, yeah, this is of course the time before you know uh, social <laughs> welfare and these kinds of things, which were which we thankfully have, um, and also just the the. Yeah, let's 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 be frank. The the very uh, I mean, being a musician at that time was basically to be a civil servant, you know, um, and uh, emphasis quite on the servant part. Um, you were subject to 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 the whim, the will and whims of uh, yeah higher ups, and you had to write this, you had to perform perform that, and yeah, I mean to have written such amazing music. Despite the very functional nature of it, I mean, it, it's. I mean, of course, it was possible. It was. It was necessary because music was so embedded into society, um, and that people understood music or listened to music, let's say, in a way that we simply don't do anymore. Um, so uh, that has to be considered as well. But mm. uh, indeed, uh, yeah, um, what a time! <laughs> yeah. Um, I think you, you're you're onto something when you talk about um, the the use and and the function of music nowadays as, as being fundamentally different. I think for a lot of people, their their experience of music nowadays might be one more of hearing music as opposed to listening to music. And um, and trained musicians would obviously be able to tell any any trained musician would be able to tell you the difference between hearing music and listening to music and i think um uh, there certainly is something in that that far more people were probably aware of the functionality and the the the, the inner workings of a, of a piece of music and and um, and it wasn't something that necessarily had to be taught because it was prevalent at the uh, at the time but also because music is so um easily accessible now you know we are um we have youtube we have spotify you know this very platform that we're uh, speaking for um, it's so easy to get music, which um, kind of uh, makes us forget, or it, it makes us makes makes it for us very hard to grasp that there was a time when music was impossible 
without so there was no other option except live music. There, there was simply. I mean, it's it's very hard for us to imagine not being able to you know flip on some device and and put some music on. Um, and how, uh, yeah, without the performer or without you being in personally involved in it, music was just not possible. Mm. So, um, yeah, it was a uh, was much more, let's say, a transient uh, thing that had to be enjoyed in that very moment and yes. not afterwards. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, I, I'd like for us to move on to some of your work uh, more as a soloist, um, Shunsuke. And um, and there there's a certain uh, well there are several recordings of the sonatas and partitas that have have, have hit YouTube and various other platforms, um, but in particular the the, the much uh, talked about Chacon from the Partita Number no. Two in D Minor, both academically and um, and, and critically. Uh, perhaps you could tell us about what it was like this this process and and uh, and your process learning these pieces to start off with um how did you come to 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 performing these um these staples of the of the violin repertoire that are often s- seldom mastered um certainly not the whole uh, the whole suite of sonatas and partitas by any one uh one player what was there a particular motivation for you or was this something that you get you got from your teacher how did your journey with the sonatas and partitas start Pretty early, that's that's how I started, um, and luckily so. Um, I had teachers who just had me play them um, as early as possible. Um, um, I'm sure I, I, I have, yeah, I, I still remember having. Um, it must be somewhere in my in, at my mother's um, home in the U.S. Um, a a very old. Uh, in, uh, book of of the of the partitas sonatas and partitas with red and blue and yellow and all manner of colored markers and pencils uh that my teachers and also my my mother also <laughs> used to remind me of all the things that I was forgetting um and yeah so i i knew the pieces at least you know uh at least i knew the notes from a very early age and so that does give Anybody, of course, um, a head start, and luckily, also, you know, I had teachers who, 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 yeah, who thought probably very much in in this way that you know, of course, it might be quote unquote too difficult musically, um, and um, for for a ten year old, for for a twelve year old, but you know, um, by the time you're twenty five and thirty, you know the note, you've been, you've known the notes for 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 twenty years, so. So that's no longer an issue, thank goodness, because um, those can be really hard to learn um, at a later age. And then, um, and then for me, it was of course with the discovery of. Well, let me put. Let me step a step. Take one step back because I did feel very strongly for this music, and actually, um, at times I was um, criticized for playing this music too. Um, uh, emo- emotionally overt, let's say, and that was uh, um, actually an, an interesting moment for me because, well, then I had to ask myself, you know, what? So where where does that boundary lie? You know, when has that boundary of too much been crossed? Um, I want to know more. And then I went on and did um, uh, started baroque violin and learned about the expressive possibilities, uh, what's expected or what what's what's um, 
well, quote unquote, allowed or what was, let's say, um, uh, what people did. And for me, it was basically a confirmation of what I had kind of in- instinctively felt um, that um, that clarity of of affect or emotion or character is very important. Um, whether it's a fugue or uh, an academic fugue or something something that's more melodic, let's say, um, this is always important. And uh, by learning Baroque violin and Baroque music and the performance practices, and then later on um, getting to know Bach's cantatas and other works um, and works by composers that he uh, valued and imitated Vivaldi, for example, you know, um, somebody whom, at least character-wise, we would associate with something a lot more overt, overt and and uh, maybe even crass uh, to to a certain extent. Um, that Bach embraced this um, uh, music, and what so what does that mean? What kind of implications does that have for for interpreting Bach? Um, so, if anything, it's kind of helped me grow um, in the. Uh, expressiveness palette um, and and yeah um, just playing them uh, over and over and over again um, I still remember how uh, the very first time I was offered to play all six of uh, all six of them across two concerts and I was I was scared as hell I mean I didn't know whether I would survive I mean that's that's how I felt anyway um, and of course I did and and uh, and then the second time it was slightly less scary the third time even less and and now I really feel like I can you can you can really uh, wake me up in the middle of middle of a jet lagged <laughs> uh, stay somewhere in some hotel and have me play them and I would still be able to get my points across um, I really yeah um, yeah and also to warm up also before concerts I use uh, a little fugue here and there just to get my get my fingers in yes, shape yes uh, I and heard that yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean they're so I mean they were also probably composed for that for in in that way of, of not just great music but also di- didactic material um, so yeah, that's that's uh, that's how I got here. And and with this familiarity that you now have, um, have your feelings about the the music and and especially how you would like to mm. for them to be portrayed when you play them, has that changed? Uh, yes, um, and that is that they're not as difficult as they're made out to be. I mean, it sounds really preposterous to say that, but I really mean it because um, I think. Uh, just among violinists that of course it deserves a very special place within the repertoire it is extraordinary on all fronts it really is um, I mean just the pure uh, idea of writing a fugue uh, like an actual fugue um, with all the voices going where they're supposed to, and not just kind of like um, you have also a lot of fake fugues out there for the violin, where you get one voice, two voice, and then by the third time, by, by the third voice, by the time that comes in, the other voices have dropped out because it's unhandy or it's not playable on the violin, etc. That happens all the time with Bach. That's not the case. It's so well put together. It's playable sometimes, just barely, but it's it's all there. And um, and so it definitely does have a, have a, a very des- well deserved place um, uh, as yeah you know, one of the pinnacles, but um, the whole trick 
is actually overcoming all these difficulties to the the art of concealing the art and and um i teach this of course to my students as well and you know they they usually come in with like oh my god it's a shakar or oh my god it's a fear it's like look yes i understand it's long it's difficult it's hard but look if you look at it let's take these four bars look at it what do you do what what's what's the harmony doing what are the notes doing you know is there a dissonance is that a resolution how do how does it and then you know bit by bit um looking at it from this slightly dry but also kind of it's not just kind of this massive thing anymore but you look at every bit and you 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 wrestle with it and you and you analyze it and then it's like okay now i know what to do with it and 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 then um, of course there are lots of tricks um to to make it sound you know uh, elegant and 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 um yeah so basically my my goal is to make it not sound uh like a struggle that it's it could be a violin it could be four violins could be a keyboard instrument but just kind of to really overcome the the violinness of of the pieces mm Oh, it's it's a very interesting uh, uh, approach, and and I'm sure that there are many violinists screaming at the uh, at the at their computers right now, uh, because I so. <laughs> because I mean that that may well have been the most ridiculous thing that's ever been said on this podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> yes, but at the same time, somebody had to do it. But at the, at the at the same time, it's very true. If if you break down something and it's sort of you know eating the elephant bite by bite, mm. um, you, you've got to start somewhere, and uh, and the res- Solutions, thinking about mm. the harmony. Maybe yeah. that alone is the thing that, well, actually, that a lot of violinists don't tend to do. Yeah, well, we're not... Uh, yeah, I mean, the difference between uh, 21st century, a typical 21st century musician or certainly violinist and one of uh, 300 years ago is that we're not trained in, in different disciplines. So, I mean, a typical... I mean, you, you may have excelled on the violin, but you will you would have also gotten training on, on basso continuo. Um Partimento, all of these things. So you will, would have been just kind of generally aware of of the musical language as a whole, yeah. And so what that does indeed is actually it tells you what's quote unquote important in the music, what's less important. So not it's not just a string of very difficult things, but this is important, that's important, but the stuff in between not so much. So yeah. you you prioritize and you you eventually start seeing the larger scope and also just um, yeah. Um, if I can put it this way, um, saving energy when it's not necessary, musically speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I am going to put on the Chaconne from uh, Violin Partita Number no. 2 in, in D minor. Now, uh, the, the last question I'll, I'll have for you, maybe you can answer this while we're, we're listening because there is so much music to listen to, <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, um, uh, is whether or not or what your position is on on the purpose of this work is are we thinking too deeply in that that Bach uh, wrote this as some sort of tombeau to his first wife because of the circumstances of, of when it was composed well actually we don't know when it was composed at least um, that's the that's the trouble of it so any anecdote there are lots of them lots of anecdotes um, and yeah some of them are quite nice I will I would if they, if it were true I think indeed if we found some one day some concrete advice uh, uh, um, uh, not advice uh, uh, proof that it was written yeah, then then we need to reconsider it but so so far as I know we don't know why or for whom uh, when there are lots of vague points on this one mm. so um, I mean you can one can inspire that uh, take that as take that as, as inspiration uh, absolutely but yeah I mean that's that's up to the performer yeah. 
So this is the Chacon, right? Yes, uh, just the Chacon. This is uh, me playing the Chacon from the second partita for solo violin in D minor. Pains me to do this, Shunsuke, mm-hmm. to turn the, the the volume down so we Not can. Me. We can do <laughs> but it, it's it, uh, there's no good place to stop this anyway. So no. let's let's leave the Shikon train going on um, while while we talk a little bit about this particular recording. Um, what would you like to tell us about about how this this came about and 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 the Netherlands Bach Society approach to your solo violin uh, recordings? Well, um, this one was, I believe, in a in a in a disused um, light bulb factory, I believe, and um, quite an interesting. You know, so you have lots of um, uh, yeah holes in the walls and bits of crumbling wall with with. Uh, with uh, layers from the past that peek out and it was really um, quite inspiring and uh, rather good acoustics um, we had to be rather aware of airplanes flying by because it was apparently on uh, right under one of the with uh, the airport Schiphol airport being pretty close by we had to stop quite often I remember but um but yeah um, it was uh, it was yeah great to have a yet another goal um, at at these at these pieces because actually I'd, I'd done a CD of it just about a year and a half before this and so um, yeah by this time yeah I, I'd come into let's say this comfortable zone with with these pieces and um, it was a pretty tight schedule but we got through mm. and your violin it, it says here obviously it's a Cornelius uh, Kleinman violin roughly 1684 perhaps mm. you could tell us about your instrument well actually um, that's what we that's what I thought it was um, and um, I actually had it uh, um, copied. So I took this instrument to a violin maker, and since this violin doesn't didn't the one that's that I'm playing on the recording here, it, it doesn't belong to me. It's not mine. <clears throat> and uh, and and it's being loaned to me on a, on very incredibly generous terms. I pay absolutely nothing for it. I can play basically as long as I I, I, I wish. Um, it's for the good of the instrument, and and the the owner is happy that it's played um but i also wanted to make a copy of it in case you know it is an old instrument um should it need to go back to the owner etc and then uh the research uh that the violin maker did for me she said well um actually i'm not sure i don't think i'm pretty sure it's not a Kleinmann. it uh it's uh, Kleinmann was a it was an uh amsterdam violin maker and they have um 
a very distinct style of, of building and it does, just doesn't fit. And she said, it's probably a Flemish violin by um, a violin maker by the name of Willems. Um, uh, Willems, sorry. Um, also, they were father and son uh, uh, builder building team. And um, so, yeah, it turned out to be not a Kleinmann, but uh, <laughs> a Willems, which doesn't change anything for me. It still sounds marvelous and everything. And uh, yeah, so uh, now I... I, I've been playing on the copy uh, lately to play it in and to get it uh, warmed up, and you know, it takes years for these instruments to really uh, mature. So um, yeah, so on this tour, I have the copy, and not not this one. And and in terms of the bow, then, are you using the same bow for both instruments, both the original and the copy, or yeah. have you also, you know, obviously got uh, got something in in particular for um, for, for either? Nah, I mean bows. Uh, yeah, it's the same bow. I'm playing the same bow as as uh, here as on the recording. And um, yeah, I mean it. Um, yeah, who said that? I think it was uh, Viotti who said, "Le violon c'est l'archer," which means the violin is actually the bow. Yeah, and 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 what that means is that the you know you can have the same instrument and then have ten different bows and then you'll have ten different sounding differently sounding violins i mean that's how influential bow can be on the other hand um uh, when you have a bow uh, which you feel so comfortable with which in the case of my bow it is i feel like i can do pretty much anything i need to with it so i don't i mean there are people who really insist on uh, or like uh, being um historically accurate so to speak you know so french repertoire this and italian repertoire that and this um and i i see why i see the value in that but um maybe i'm a little bit too lazy for that. <laughs> I, I have my wonderful bow i know how to use it and i have an idea that i want to reach with it so i mean yeah i mean for me an instrument is actually exactly that an instrument it's an instrument to achieve something it's an instrument it's a means to achieve something, mm. so um, yeah, it's the same bowl. With some some other instrumentalists that I've spoken with about muscle memory and 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 having several instruments, obviously the ones that spring to my mind are Melissa Farrow with all of her wind instruments, and then uh, Tommy Anderson with all of his <laughs> lutes. I mean, twenty seven different lutes. You're going to have differences of spacing. You're going to have differences of reach, and and uh, I can only imagine how much of a nightmare that 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 might be. But you know, it's true the same as a bow. Uh, mm-hmm. You know how long you might be able to draw for, and and all the the rest of it. It's yeah. perhaps I mean, your approach is is you know it's it's it's, a, it's a, there's a paradox there because um, you know it, now in the 21st century where we're able to look back onto uh, history and look back at how things were done in 17th century France versus something else you know um, and we're able to extract information from each of these regional variants uh, uh, variants and also uh, variants of time you know 17th versus 18th versus 19th um, we are able to do this uh, but so, so on, on the one hand, we know how these things were at the time. But on the other hand, if you were actually living in 18th century Italy, you wouldn't be traveling to France and to Germany every other week and switching, switching instruments. You would bring your, you know, if you watch your had. own instrument, what yeah. you had. Yeah. And furthermore, uh, more often than not, you would actually stay with one particular 
uh, court or ensemble or orchestra and kind of kind of be, be in the same circle for most of your life um, which of course then in turn gave birth to um, strong identities you know if you're stuck let's say uh, in the positive sense with one one group um, you you will develop certain idiosyncrasies um, uh, musically, and so, uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a paradox because on the one hand, the historical thing to do is just to take what you have and then work work it to the bone. On the other hand, HIP is about you know investigating all of all, all of these things about these regional differences, and so um, yeah, um, that's a that's a, that's a difficult difficult one to reconcile. Yes. And now, uh, moving back six years to the Sato and the Romantics program and the Paganini Violin Concerto Number no. 4 in, in D minor that you played then, all of this training and knowledge and experience you have in his historically informed performance practice, uh, did you approach that particular repertoire, which is obviously much later in time, did you approach it differently because of, uh, because of this experience? Or, or uh, mm. since then, do you think that your views have changed yet again? I mean, it's, is, is it a case of uh, would you play that Paganini differently now? Or Yeah, I'm, uh, yes. I mean, the, the answer is I'm, I'm probably playing it differently. I, I wouldn't be able to say how. Um, but yeah, I don't. Um, uh, I don't really ref- go go back to my earlier performances. Say this time I'm going to do it differently, um, because I don't know. I, I'm much more interested about how I feel about it right now, and it might be it might be different. It might be the same. I'm not sure. Um, but I've never. I've seldom gone back to a recording and say, okay, I did that then. This time I'm going to do it differently. Do it differently. Um, about approach, um, yes and no. Um, different, uh, any different from any other repertoire? Uh, yes and no. Because uh, yes, because of course it's a different uh, style. Uh, it's a different. Um, it's a different century altogether. Different instruments. Um, different demands. But the attitude is the same. Um, to look uh, to to look at the earliest possible um, uh, documentation or evidence or pieces of information that you can find about the piece, and to uh, to embody it uh, really to make it make it your own. Um, in the case of the Greek, for example, um, I remember that I I uh, went looking for. Uh, um, recordings, uh, uh, historical uh, historical recording of the piece, and I had to dig uh, a little harder than usual because um, and and the because there weren't many that I could find that were really interesting. But then there was suddenly one that I found by the London String Players or something like this from the 1930s. And yes, I mean the 1930s is removed from. Greek by by a few decades, but what was interesting about this recording was that they they um, they were doing lots of tempo changes that were not marked in the score, uh, which is a feature that um, a lot of early recordings have: uh, tempo flexibility, tempo changing the tempo or the pace of the music in order to um, uh, articulate. Uh, yeah, motion, or if you if you hold if you take something a little bit slow, then you give weight to it. You make it important. You make it very declamatory. And if you speed up, obviously you increase excitement, and so on and so forth. And they were doing this uh, without any direct indication from Greek himself. Which, incidentally, if you um, 
if you know some of Grieg's own recordings on the piano, yeah, his own piano playing is full of that. He writes one thing on the score and then he's doing, at least from our 21st century eyes, not exactly what's on the paper. And so this discrepancy is to be expected. And so I took this recording as, as quite a important piece of, piece of uh, evidence and I, and I uh, had the Australian Brandenburg uh, experiment with me. Um, so the approach is the same. I mean, we won't have recordings of Johann Sebastian Bach, obviously, but you, you try to get as close as you can mm. and, and examine direct and also indirect evidence and embody that to the best of your abilities. Well, perhaps seeing as you've mentioned the Greek, we could put on the opening movement, the prelude from that Holberg uh, suite that was uh, sure. recorded in 2016 for the Sato and the Romantics uh, program. As the music's starting to warm up, I can see you're, you're yeah. getting into it and gesticulating yeah, yeah, yeah. a, a bit. Did, what memories does this piece um, bring back for you, Shunsuke? Oh, gosh. Um, quite a, a nice one, let's say. Um, yeah, first visit to Australia and uh, meeting, meeting new friends and uh, making new friends and colleagues. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I really remember. Yeah, I was also playing in my mind while I was listening to, to my own recording the other one, the historical one, and kind of trying to recall of recall what was happening there and what drove me to come to this conclusion. Yeah, yeah, and also there were a number of other recordings I was kind of obsessed at the time um, that I had also discovered uh, um, wonderful um, recordings of some of the uh, Strauss, uh, uh, Johann Strauss, um, uh, his waltzes recorded in the 30s um, with lovely portamentos and flexibility of tempo and subtlety um, that, uh, that, yeah, it's, it's just hard to describe. You have to listen to it. But it's, um, yeah, it reminds me of that time of, of how, yeah, these new possibilities were just kind of seemingly falling out of the sky for me. For, for, for me and I wanted to do all of them, obviously. In that program, um, obviously, we've mentioned it several times, the, the Paganini Violin Concerto. Um, is there a particular movement that, um, that also evoked such uh, you know, fascination for you, musically speaking? Yeah, again, the second movement, um, it really, uh, it's a very short, like compared to the outer movement, uh, it's uh, oh, like four minutes or something, something ridiculously short in compared, in com uh, compared to the uh, outer movements, which can last from you know, 15 to 20 minutes, I think. Um, but it's quite a gem. Um, it um, starts with um, kind of a drum, a muted drum roll um, with with strings and, and uh, wind eventually joining in. So it kind of has this uh, feeling of 
of some some creature emerging from the earth um and um and it i don't know maybe it's a coincidence i have no idea but it sounds incredibly like the uh actually the mel- melodic contours are very much like the um beethoven's third symphony the eroica and paganini as a matter of fact was a great admirer of beethoven it said that um actually instead of um you know, using his own kind of pyrotechnical things to warm up, he would often just play a Beethoven, you know, bits of Beethoven quartets um, to to get warmed up and, and ready for the stage. Um, and so, I don't think it's a coincidence. Um, but uh, yeah, so and also that kind of movement. Um, so you have a very stable accompaniment, which actually sounds very much like um, Verdi, if anything. Um, these um, uh, 19th century operas and the possibilities that a singer has um, in terms of timing and rubato and the freedom yeah that's uh, something that's very um, I, I really loved playing this piece so let's have a listen to Shunsuke Sato again as uh, director and solo violinist for the Paganini Violin Concerto Number no. 4 in D minor now this is the second movement the Adagio featuring Paul Dyer and the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra I keep uh, having to pull down your volume right. uh, today. <laughs> but 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 in, indeed, Shunsuke, I mean, it's 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 wonderful music to listen to, and and we're hearing a lot more of that portamento that you're mm-hmm. talking about mm-hmm. the the sliding between mm-hmm. some of these notes and more flexibility with uh, how a note might might be spoken, as opposed to what we're traditionally used to to hearing. I suppose in more of the Baroque repertoire that the the Brandenburg performs more of. Yeah, well. Uh, it's all about legato. Portamento is a byproduct of legato. Um, it's not. Uh, uh, it's not something that you can separate. Um, I mean, and again, the inspiration, or rather, let's say the the source of that is the voice. Um, basically, uh, a singer, if you have an instrumental equivalent, is is somebody who is 
playing, so to speak, singing, playing on an instrument that has only one string, so to speak, you know. So in order to get from one note, and, and especially if you have a large interval or even a small one, um, without the sliding, you, you, I mean, you, you need to go, you need to go through all the frequencies in between the two notes in order to get from one pitch to another. That's simply how it works with, with voice. And, and, um, and also uh, that uh, journey from one note to the next, that has lots of expression too. Is it a large interval? Is it a very uncomfortable interval? Is it a small and tortured interval? Is it a large and very sprightly interval? You know, it's not just about point A and point B, but the journey in between. And so that's what Portamento is about as well. It's been fascinating talking with you today, Shunsuke, and we, we've touched on many things. Um, uh, I suppose the last question I have for you today is, is what uh, do you think audiences should be most excited about with this Barks program that, um, that's soon to be going to Melbourne? Yes. Um, what excites me, <laughs> funny enough, is, is, the, is the bits that are not on the program. <laughs> Um, in the sense that you, this is just a small, tiny, minuscule tasting of of the genius of this family. I'm leaving out heaps, uh, and I and I want to be very clear about. I'm skipping over generations. I'm skipping. I'm skipping. You know, because there's only so much you can fit into. Yeah, one concert program. Um, that's what I hope to be the ambassador of on with this program of not just Johann Sebastian but all these uh, uh, other geniuses that were running around central Germany. And, and they obviously also exchanged music with each other. Um, Johann Sebastian performed his uh, uh, family members' pieces in his own uh, church services or his own context and shared them and played them with great pleasure, quite clearly. So that's what I would like to, to um, have audiences be excited about. Oh, that, that's a, I think it's a very nice thing to be excited about because indeed I'm sure our audiences will look to, to platforms like YouTube and others um, to, uh, to discover, I think, more of this repertoire. They're indeed, on Brandenburg 1 itself, there's a small portion of, of solo Bach uh, uh, work and on all of Bach we can certainly get into uh, more of Johann Sebastian's work, but, but to look further afield and, and to start investigating some of these other obscure third uncle and various mm, other <laughs> members of the absolutely. family and perhaps some, even some of the women of the family, although we don't have uh, very much music surviving mm. from, from any of them, unfortunately. Yep. Now, is there any anyone you'd like to shout out to in particular today? Oh gosh! <laughs> well, uh, basically, to everyone for for joining us and listening, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been such a uh, an honor and pleasure to be in in Australia and to be surrounded by such uh, supportive and wonderful colleagues. Um, I'm just I'm just really thankful. So shout out to everyone, I guess, and also to you, Hugh, for um, slipping in uh, wonderful bits of information between rehearsals about uh, Wilhelm Friedemann and and, and others. So uh, yeah, well, thank I don't you. Don't have to shout very far because yeah. you're sitting across <laughs> me, but thank you. Thank you very much. Um, always a pleasure. Thank you. The Brandenburg is proud of our long-standing relationship with partner Macquarie Group. Our partnership with Macquarie Group is built on a shared vision of infinite possibilities and a commitment to the very highest standards of excellence. 
The Brandenburg is also proud to be supported by APA Group, our presenting partner for the Bach series. Through our partnership with APA Group, we have the opportunity to connect Baroque music to audiences and communities throughout Australia.